we need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Well, Joe, are we live? Because it came up with a message saying I, the live stream ended. Sure you saw that. Yes, yeah, I, hit, I, I saw I, exactly I, the same thing. I hit the go live button and it says it's streaming and we've got two people watching. So There we go. If you're in the chat room, say hello so that we know that we are actually live streaming. Yeah. And YouTube and Twitch have just pinged me to say we're live. There we go. Okay. That's why we've got you here for the comfort of having the tech guy controlling all this. Good on you, Joe. This is the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove podcast, episode 401. With me as always, when he's got a microphone, <laughs> or when he's got a microphone he's managed to find it in the box, <laughs> Scott the Velvet Glove. G'day Trevor, g'day Joe, g'day listeners. Yes. I hope everyone's doing well. We hope they are as well. And Joe the tech guy, welcome aboard again, Joe. Evening all. Right. Okay. Looks like a chat room's working. Yeah, we had just a funny little hiccup at the start there, so the normal intro dropped out. But, yeah, we'll just charge on with our normal scheduled program, which is on a Monday night because, as I mentioned last week, it's my daughter's birthday and I'm cooking tomorrow night, so I can't podcast. And, look, I was going to record my Indigenous another Indigenous episode, but I'm away next week, so I figured best to get Scott and Joe back on and then – do the recorded one next week rather than two recorded ones. So we're just going to run through topics in the way that we normally do and we're going to talk about Chinese spy balloons. Scott Morrison is actually right about something. The other day we mentioned Joe Rogan. We're going to talk about him again. Can polls be trusted? And a little bit on The Voice, a little bit on Libya, a little bit on... Germans say no. The German. about whether, Yeah, about whether the polls can be trusted. <laughs> Boom, boom. Very British, aren't you, Joe? <laughs> You're never going to forgive the Germans for this 3rd of September 1939, are you? Yeah. So, okay. Uh, right. Just briefly came out about, remember, dear listener, is it, it's less than a year ago, maybe about six, nine months mm. ago, there was all the uh, furore about Chinese spy balloons and a report out which says, in what should be a shock to no one, the Chinese balloon was not spying. Now, seven months later, General Mark Milley, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, tells CBS News Sunday morning the balloon wasn't spying. The intelligence community, their assessment, and it's a high-confidence assessment, is that there was no intelligence collection by that balloon, he said. Meanwhile, just as a reminder, back on May 21, President Biden remarked, this silly balloon that was carrying two freight cars worth of spying equipment was flying over the United States and it got shot down and everything changed in terms of talking to one another. That just demonstrates how close we are to a disaster on this world when something as simple as a weather balloon flies off course. What? And Do we know it was a weather balloon? Well, it wasn't a spy balloon. Yeah, absolutely. What what was it, though? Well, the Chinese said it was for largely meteorological observations. And there's nothing... And if they were lying, I'm sure General Mark Milley would have said so. Yeah. 
Like, if it wasn't what the Chinese said, wouldn't he be delighted in saying it was something else other than what they told us? I seem to recall the Chinese being very circumvent about what it actually was. They didn't really confirm or deny that it was a spy spy, um, balloon at all. No, the Chinese said it's just a spy balloon. It's not a spy balloon. It's just a weather balloon. So they were... Where is it here? Oh, God. I've to, during the, at some stage I'll find the relevant section. But they basically came out with a statement and said, it's just doing meteorological observations. It has very limited capacity to direct itself. The winds took it in that direction. And that's all there is to the story. We'll continue to talk to the Americans about it. And- it was interesting. Not long after that happened, actually, I saw a presentation on amateur balloons yeah, yes. amateur groups circumnavigating the world with balloons. Yes. And how they're tracking them using low-powered ham radio. And I was just wondering, you know, what's going to happen when one of those gets assumed to be a spy balloon and gets shot down? Well, will it happen again? You know, it's it's just an example of a beat-up over nothing. So, I mean, even in this conversation, you guys have said... Oh, but what was it? Was it a, was it really a weather balloon? And Scott, you've said, "Oh, the Chinese—they were very circumspect in telling us what it was. They weren't very helpful." Like well, for goodness I sake, just, at the end I of the day, seem to remember that there wasn't a hell of a lot coming from China. That's right. What, they didn't actually comment on it okay. at the time. Yeah. So it's one of those things. It's no surprise that Biden said what he said on May twenty-one. But anyway. what if the Chinese did say exactly what I've said? Well, I think the Yanks would have still shot it down, but they wouldn't have looked so foolish now. Yeah. So let me find it here. As we keep keep talking, because I'll 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 try and find this section where they've given. You know, had the had the had the Chinese actually said exactly what it was, and they and the Yanks wouldn't have believed it, then they still would have shot it down. And then right now they wouldn't look as foolish as what they as what they did because. The, they would have been able to point to exactly what the Chinese said and then the, those like Trevor and that sort of stuff would say, well, they told you what it was and you didn't believe them, so you still shot it down. So it's one of those things. I think the Yanks would have been damned if they didn't, damned if they didn't, you know. Anyway, here into the rant. Yeah. So really, no problem, America, just damned if they did, damned if they didn't, and it, it wasn't flew, an overreaction. I, it flew over their airspace. Mm-hmm. So I think to myself that they've got to accept the consequences. of If you're going to fly over someone else's airspace, then you've got to accept that it could get shot down. Yeah, well, I, you know, it's it's the, the Chinese, I guess, accepted that it's got shot down because it went in the wrong area by mistake. But they were just saying it's not a spy balloon. It's just there by mistake. If you want to shoot it down, go ahead and shoot it down. But we're not spying on you. Well, like I said, I, I don't recall what the Chinese actually said. Mm, okay. Uh, mm. Yeah, I, I have heard, I don't know the truth because I wasn't around, but that the Americans were very happy that Sputnik overflew the United States because historically any overflight was considered trespass. And therefore, you could shoot it down. And the fact that the Russians put Sputnik up and was flying over the whole world meant that space was an open frontier and they could put spy satellites up. Mm. 
I can't find it easily, but anyway, I'll put it in the show notes, what they said. Look in the show notes, dear listener, and you'll see the words of the Chinese as they are telling people what it was. Anyway, it's been admitted by the Americans it was not spying. Right. Which they wouldn't have known about had they not shot it down. (laughs) They they haven't admitted to Nord Stream yet, though, have they? No, not yet. No. They haven't admitted to Nord Stream, no. No, that might take a bit longer to come up with that one. I don't think they're ever going to admit to that. Yeah. Mm. Nuclear power, just a thing from the shovel. I think yeah. Dutton and co. are still talking about small modular nuclear reactors. Proposing yeah, no, which and, and anything to get the focus off renewable energy. Yes. Yeah, I know. They're a pack of fucking morons, aren't they? Mm. You know, they just will not accept the fact that renewable energy is, cheap, is the cheapest form of electricity that the country could have. Mm. And, you know, they, they keep bleating on about nuclear power and everything else because it's, you know, I suppose once coal is extinguished and all that sort of stuff, they're just going to... base load. You've not heard this argument? What's the argument? So you have base load power and then you have peaking power. Mm. So your base load power is your day-to-day, we need X amount of electricity... And that's your takes a long time to run up, takes a long time to slow down, is just efficient, but can't cope with fluctuations in the grid. Mm. And then you have peaking power, which is something like a gas plant, Mm. which can spin up very quickly, but is more expensive to run. And so you use that when you need a burst of electricity and you can shut it off when you don't need it. Mm. And the argument is that with renewables being variable so wind and solar are very variable mm. that you will need some form of base load to cover for when the renewables drop out mm-hmm. but i've heard somebody from aemo talking about no you just need to build additional capacity and generally you will have enough capacity in one area that will cope for any shortfall because it will only be regional correct just to, it's much cheaper just to do heaps more of renewable so that you're yep. totally over, over supplied and with a minimal amount of storage and you're good to go. It's a total nonsense, the nuclear powered story. Any of the reports done by reputable scientific groups who crunch the numbers say it's nonsense and it's just expensive. There are no small modular nuclear reactors in the world anywhere. And they are expensive to run compared to other forms of supply. It's just craziness by Dutton and Co. And good on the, well, what did they say in the uh, the shovel said, the party that was unable to build a commuter car park uh, unveils plans to build 71 nuclear reactors, which pretty much sums it up in their... No, no, this is why we have AUKUS. Yes. So, so we're going to have the nuclear reactors from the submarines. We're just going to park them yeah. in, in our harbours, <laughs> plug them into shore power. Yes. That's the small nuclear reactor. Yes. It's in the submarines. That's it, Joe. Yeah. Yep. There's going to be a bit of a little mini, mini inquiry. Anthony Albanese has announced a year-long inquiry into our response into the COVID-19 pandemic. It won't be a royal commission. It will call on state premiers to give evidence about how they worked together but it won't have the scope to investigate any of the major decisions that state governments took individually. And Scott Morrison said, well, that's a pretty useless investigation then, 
if you're not going to look at the individual decisions of state premiers, more or less, what's the point? And you'd have to say Scott Morrison's probably right on this one. Yeah, I suppose he is right, but I just think to myself, he's probably doing it for base political reasons that he could use probably. it to cover up. He's probably doing it to cover up uh, Barry Jicklian and also then hang shit on Dan, what's his name? Dan, Dan Andrews. Andrews. Dan Andrews, that's it, yeah. Yeah. And because he'd be worried about what might come out that might be critical of him and his role. Oh, God, yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. So his motivations were no doubt pretty. <laughs> Pretty obvious, but yeah, the point he's making point he's making is a fair one. You'd have to say that it was if you're going to do an inquiry, point, you should be looking at the individual decisions of the different state premiers because they did make their own individual decisions about what their states were doing. So mm-hmm. um, that that was what saved us because mm. of the inaction of Morrison's government. Mm. Uh, but at the end of the day, it was a piecemeal response. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I, I think we do need a serious review of this is going to happen again. What do we do next time it happens? Yeah, yep. I agree. I agree. With you. We've got to have some sort of we've got to have some sort of plan and that sort of stuff so that when it happens, that is dusted off and they say this is what the plan was. Yeah, and, and what happened right this time? What went wrong? What do we do? What don't we do? Mm. Seems crazy oh. though to not include a review of the decisions of state premiers about what they did in their states. It's only looking at state premiers in how they cooperated together. So yeah, which is hmm. a crazy sort of thing that they actually said. You know, I, I wonder if this is Albanese not wanting focus on the the Labor premiers because obviously hmm. Dan Andrews was unpopular, and if you believe the Courier Fail, hmm. Palaszczuk was an absolute dictator. Mm. Yeah, there was all those people that are just across the border dying because they couldn't come to Queensland hospitals, mm. despite the fact that they could. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It'll be interesting to see. I mean, we do need an inquiry because obviously that's not going to be the last of event like this, whether it's, it's 5, 10, again. 20 or 50 years. It's going to happen again at some point. Mm. Exactly. So we'll see what happens with that one. No doubt we'll be talking about that lots as we get down the track. We mentioned the other day about Joe Rogan and tech guy Joe was very consistent in his views on Joe Rogan. (laughs) Yeah, shockingly so. Yeah. So got my attention when I saw this article, which was more than 50% of women under the age of 35 consider listening to the Joe Rogan experience to be a major red flag in the dating world, according to a new poll. So, sorry, how many of us are interested in women under 35? Right. This is the marrying age. <laughs> so it's, it's just who it is. But, yeah, women under 35 meet a guy and the guy says, yeah, I listen to Joe Rogan. That's a turn off for more than 50% of women. So that would be 55% of women under 35 in this poll thought that listening to Joe Rogan was a turn off. So... What was at the top of the list? Obviously, this was an American poll. Identifying as a MAGA Republican was a turn-off for 76% of women. Having no hobbies, that was a turn-off for 66% of women. There you go, men out there. You meet some nice lady and she says, do you have any hobbies? Make, make some up if you, don't, if you don't have one because it's a turn-off not to have a hobby. Saying all lives matter, 60% would find that a turn-off. Saying there's only two genders, 58% would say that 
that is a turn-off. Saying they're so unbothered that they never ask for details, that would turn off 58% of women in this survey. They like their men to ask about about details. What? Anything. Okay. If they're not interested in details, if they're not a detail person, then 58% of women find that a turn-off. And 55% find it a turn-off if a prospective male partner identifies as a communist. Hmm. Then listening to Joe Rogue and then identifying as a conservative. Next one, actually, this is a problem. 53% will find it a turn-off if the male partner refuses to see the Barbie movie. Have you seen it? I haven't seen it. But it was quite a good movie. It's not like I've refused to. I just don't see many movies these days. Okay. I'm not in a movie viewing habit. It is it is quite a good film. And then an Oppenheimer, that was very good too. All right. Joe. Mm. Yeah, I've seen it. Oh, okay. There you go. And is it good? Yeah, it was all right. It was all right. Um, just a bit. I, I I wouldn't take it too seriously, but mm. No, I, I didn't understand the whole beat up on it and all that sort of stuff, saying how great it was and everything else. It was a good movie, but I just didn't see the... I was shocked at the number of sex education cast members that were in there. Yeah, there were a hell of a lot in there, yeah. Sex education cast It's a a UK TV show on Netflix. Oh, okay. Very funny. And there were like three or four cast members. So so British people were in an American movie, and, of course, the star is an Australian. Right. Okay. Mm. So it was a very international cast. Mm. Just back to the survey, they also asked men about what turns them off, and the biggest one, 64%, was uh, if the woman identifies as a communist. Um, essentially, as you're looking at it, <laughs> the, the women were turned off if the men were conservative, as in MAGA and Joe Rogan and gender stuff, whereas the men were turned off if the women were liberal in a lot of these things. So just sort of showing that. Yeah, uh, but I mean. It's a general tendency. 59% of men were turned off if they were a MAGA Republican. Yes. As opposed to 33% if they were liberal. So I I think it still leans left. It just is slightly less leaning left than the women. Yeah, but it's significant numbers, really, I think, showing that the men are conservative wanting to see not happy with liberal responses. Yeah, probably 10% more than women. Well, yeah. Okay. Identify as a MAGA Republican. 76% of women are turned off and 59% of men. So what are we there? 17% difference there. Yeah. Here's one. They're into astrology. Men didn't like that. 41%. <laughs> well, it's bullshit. <laughs> Okay. I, I, I was a little worried about talk about politics frequently. That's yes. us screwed. Yeah. Well, you know, I don't actually necessarily talk about it frequently. Just Once a week. Yeah, that's not frequent, is it? Is yeah, it? but you yeah. also said that you e-bash anyone at dinner parties and well, that sort of that's, stuff. I'll, I'll invite them to. Like, I'll, I'll hold back if I can. I've got to feel the crowd. And, and also <laughs> so, owning a gun. I mean... So. It, it depends. If you own a gun because it's a penis extension, absolutely. If you own a gun because you regularly go hunting, mm. seems like a fair call. Yeah. Anyway, that's in the show notes. By the way, dear listeners, if you're a patron, you get a full set of show notes to read through. Thanks to Professor Dr Dentist, he upgraded his patronage, increased the amount. That was good. 
There's a link in the sh- in this sort of app show notes to the newsletter. So I send out a newsletter three times a week. If you want to see what articles I've been flagging for discussion, then you'll find that there. So sign up for three newsletters a week. Doesn't cost you anything. And I'm rejigging the IFVG Evergreen podcast. This is going to be stuff that has the evergreen content. And I stupidly put it on a different system and now I'm reverting it back to the same system that the normal podcast is on. So subscribe to the IFVG Evergreen podcast and you'll get the stuff that is timeless. And yeah, have a look at that. Right. From Queensland Parents for Secular State Schools Facebook page. Had an image within our federal parliament, there's a parliamentary group, the Friends of School Chaplaincy. Jesus Christ. At their national conference, the Labor Party confirmed a policy platform of secular public education, yet there's images of several of their MPs standing in front of the sign saying how they're part of the parliamentary Friends of School Chaplaincy group. So Shane Newman MP, Dave Smith MP and... The Speaker himself, Milton Dick, all in front of the sign showing their support for school chaplaincy. So despite the official policy of the Labor Party, plenty of Labor federal politicians wanting to support school chaplaincy. Right. Polls. Now, the other day we had John from Dire Straits. And you might remember, dear listener, he was wanting to start a bit about polls and how he didn't trust them. And I sent him a link that I had come across and he read it and he said, hmm, let's soften his views. Maybe he's not so hardline on, well, maybe he's not so much against polls as what uh, he had been before. So the link I sent him, just going to give you some of the highlights, some information about polls, because we do talk about polls a lot on this podcast and, you know, how questionable are they? How worthwhile are they? And we haven't really looked at this before. So depends on the questions and who they're calling, who they're speaking to. Yes. Or are they indeed calling? They're just making shit up. Well, yeah. So this is from a guy called Kevin Bonham, independent guy. There's a link in the show notes and he's obviously a fanatic on this stuff. And so I'm relying on his accuracy for this stuff, but I have no reason to doubt what he's son done in this report. He's got a fairly extensive website dealing with all this sort of stuff. So um, he's decided to deal with some of the polling myths that are around. And he's um, uh, dealing with a myth here. One myth is news poll only calls landlines. And he says news polls ceased landline only polling in 2015. In late 2019, news polls switched to online-only panel polling for national and state polls and no longer calls phones at all. There we go. That's interesting. So, so yeah, they've just got panels online. Here we go. Uh, myth. News poll polls generally only reach older voters because younger voters do not have landlines or answer mobile phone calls from unknown numbers. And he says in response, no major Australian regular voting intention pollster exclusively uses phone polling. Uh, News poll and essential are exclusively online and therefore don't call at all. 
Resolve is exclusively online except for a little bit of online phone hybrid in final pre-election polls. And Morgan uses online and phone hybrid polling and SMS polls. So we talk a lot about essential and news poll, but mostly essential on this podcast, exclusively online, no calling at all. And he makes the point that even when young voters were first becoming hard to reach by phone methods, random phone polling remained a viable method until 2016 because they could just adjust and give up waiting to the young voters who they did not contact or they would set quotas and keep going until they got enough young voters. So, so yeah, that was that. What else we got here? News poll only polls readers of The Australian or audiences of other news court media. And he says, in fact, the sample base for news polls polling has never had the slightest thing to do whether people read The Australian or not or what media they consume. Online polling has come in. It's involved market research panels that people have signed up for. These people may not even necessarily be aware that News Poll and The Australian exist. Um, so what happens is people sign up for polling about anything, your dietary habits, your sleeping habits, or you know any manner of things, thousands of people. You don't even know when you're signing up for a poll that you're going to be asked a political question. So they've got large numbers of people who are committed to, you know, filling in these polls, not even knowing whether it's going to be a political one at the end of the day. So uh, as I was reading some of this, he was saying, you know, maybe people could stack the polling by agreeing to be uh, on these panels, but you'd end up doing a lot of time answering polls about other things other than politics that would probably just wear wear down the patience of somebody trying to enter these polling groups for the purposes of skewing the data. So that's sort of the argument that he's running there. What else does he say? So major online panel polls have access to tens of hundreds of thousands of potential respondents uh, and send out invites to only a small proportion of the panel each time. News poll has been consistently wrong at recent elections, and he says since revamping its methods following the 2019 mass polling failure, News Corp has correctly predicted the winner of five states and one federal election, predicting the voting shares of four straight elections in 2022-23 within 1% of the two-party preferred. So, so... A really and good I error thought, rate. I thought plus minus five percent was the limit of well usable usable information in in political polling. Well, they got it within one percent. Pretty good. Yeah, but they're saying the margin of error in these is actually ten percent. Yeah. Uh, normally, I would have thought the margin of error, if the if is around two to three percent, where you've got a thousand. My understanding was if you're around a thousand or twelve hundred. That gave you a margin, a statistical margin of error of about 3%. Hmm. That was my understanding. What else have we got? Oh, yeah. Polls skew to the left because people who support right-wing movements are afraid to tell pollsters what they really think. Morrison, Brexit, Trump, etc. And his response to that is, so we're thinking at the moment maybe people are, there's more people who are prepared to say no, but they're scared to tell somebody because they don't want to be so the thing could be larger than actually 
But that, that's sort of what we've been thinking to some extent. It's possible. As a natural sort of thought process about this. And he says that this is an overrated theory. Most polling errors that were supposed to be caused by it were explained by other factors. What he says is often the case you're not actually talking to a person now. Like it's an online response. So you don't have the same sort of worry about what is this person going to think about me Mm. because it's an online panel. You're not actually speaking to a person or a human. And many of the others are an automated robot voice as well. So for the few that still do some sort of phone polling, you're not really dealing with a human being. So maybe you're not going to feel that concern. He reckons that the shy Tory or the other things aren't really supported by the results. I won't go into the reasons why, but he's given lots of reasons why. And let me see what else he says. That's kind of the main things. Anyway, I thought that increased my faith in the polls after reading it. And I certainly was just under this general assumption that they would ring people and that young people wouldn't answer their phone and it was a skewed database and it doesn't work like that at all. There we go. Mm. Right, okay. Uh, in the chat room, Watley's just arrived. You're late, Watley. <laughs> it's okay. Right. A little bit on the voice. You guys are, would have heard of Michael Mansell. Yeah, he's the blonde Aborigine in Tasmania. Mm. He's been around forever. He's been around for donkey's years, yeah. I can remember him. It must be nearly It must be nearly 40 years ago. 40 years, yeah. It'd have to be. So he's not some Johnny-come-lately into the Indigenous activism world. No. He was doing this stuff before Lydia Thorpe was born, I would have mm-hmm. thought, or Anthony Mundine. <clears throat> yeah, but he's an old conservative, so he doesn't count. Yeah. Hey, by the way, do you see this? Do you hear about Kamal? I, I, I see the lefter up in, or sorry, the yes voter up in arms about, yeah, who's bribed him because he's changed his mind and how dare he change his mind. He's obviously been nobbled. Who's saying that? The yes vote. Right. Because Kamal came out, he was originally a no voter. And mm-hmm. then he spoke to some people and announced that he was, after talking to people, a yes voter. And then he went on the project to talk about that and revealed that he changed his mind again and was now a no voter again. So what we can say is he's actually a marginal. (laughs) Don't take advice from former daytime show singers. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that was Kamal. Anyway, back to Michael Mansell. He wrote an article. So he's currently... Chairman, Aboriginal Land Council of Tasmania. And he says, vote no. And, okay, typically if you were to hear that, you would think, ah, he's in the Lydia Thorpe camp where he basically is saying that just a voice to parliament is not enough. We need treaty and we need other stuff and this just doesn't go far enough and is a waste of time. And guess what? You'd be perfectly correct because that is... Kind of what he's saying. saying. Precisely what he's saying. But he did, in lead up to that, have some interesting things to say that I thought were worthwhile. And he said that the normal process for friendly governments advancing the cause of Aboriginal people is through legislation. 
When Gough Whitlam wanted to remedy racial discrimination in 1975, he did not hold a referendum. He legislated the Racial Discrimination Act. When Malcolm Fraser wanted to give land to Aboriginals in the Northern Territory, he did not ask for a referendum. His government enacted the Northern Territory Land Rights Act of 1976. And likewise, when Paul Keating promised to shore up native title, he did not go to a referendum. He legislated the Native Title Act, 1993. Legislation is the normal way to change things. The Australian Constitution is an agreement between former British colonies to to form a federation of states with a national parliament and a court to resolve disputes. Its purpose is not to declare human rights. I I mentioned on Facebook that obviously some people who vote no, it's because they don't think that racism, even positive racism, should be enacted in the Constitution. Mm. Uh, And it was pointed out to me that Section 51 exists, Mm. uh, which allows for the federal government to make laws based on race. Mm. But it was originally excluded Aboriginals Mm. because they came under state legislation. Uh, and, in fact, federal government wasn't allowed to override state legislation on that. And also, it in itself isn't a racist piece of legislation. It merely allows it, but Parliament still has to create a law. Mm. Whereas the voice would actually say, this group of people are different. Mm-hmm. Indeed. And, in fact, Marcia Langton wanted to get rid of the race provisions out of the Constitution mm-hmm. prior to this one. So back to Michael Mansell, he says, the proposal for a so-called voice that cannot return land, raise a tax, have no resources to distribute, deliver no services, is not able to stop a racist law or even build a single house for the Aboriginal homeless means it is a shockingly weak idea. I don't think he would get on well with Noel Pearson somehow. No. I think they would be at loggerheads. Guess what? Some Indigenous people have different opinions. Uh, the whole well, I think sorry no person's going to object to the next line isn't he the yes campaign was never really about empowerment otherwise they would have opted for designated seats in the senate where six aboriginals one from each state could potentially wield real power that's what michael mansell wants yeah he goes on the whole voice idea has sucked many in emotionally The Yes campaign uses emotion to win over well-meaning people. Think rationally. How could an advisory body diminish racism or close the gap when a Prime Minister, State Premiers and peak Aboriginal organisations have been unable to? Very interesting passages in this. So he goes on to say, we don't need another advisory panel. He wants mandatory sort of seats in the Senate for Aboriginal people and he wants treaty and all the rest of it. So, but some interesting comments along the way there from Michael Mansell, who's definitely no late comer to this stuff and just an interesting perspective, I thought. Hmm. I've been comparing this whole thing to religion a few times. Hmm? Jotted down some notes before. Let's think about an Islamic voice to Parliament. Scott, why not? I mean, if they could demonstrate in the Muslim community 
a gap in financial and health outcomes, disproportionate incarceration and victimisation through discrimination, i.e. a form of racism, then why not? Why, why wouldn't we have an Islamic voice to Parliament if they could tick off similar boxes? Because it's a religious thing, not a race thing. This isn't race. This is, this is, there's no such thing as... Uh, even Marcia Langton will tell you there's no uh, Aboriginal race. It's a cultural group. There, there is no race of Indigenous people. In fact, they want to refer to themselves as First Peoples to take race out of it. So it's not about race for Marcia Langton and the other Indigenous leaders. It's about First Peoples. So anyway, I'll go on. The only real, you know, I'm just sort of painting a picture here. It's good to do these thought experiments as to, to, to okay. examine. If you just want to, if you look at the, the straight-up difference there is that the Islamic people have arrived in this country well after the 1950s when the... No, the guns were around okay. in the but, 1800s. Mm. Right, okay. You got the 1800s. That was several hundred years after the... That was several thousand years after the Indigenous people in this country were, were still around. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So, so the I difference is ancestral land rights. Yeah, I would have thought so. And you value inherited nobility land rights type concepts, Scott. Like if a nobleman, Englishman says, you know, well, my forefathers owned all of this because it was handed well, down no, from no, somebody no, years no, ago. You, you yeah, know, but, just, it just gets handed on generation to generation. No, no, no. You, you value so, so that. The, so the Celts should get reparations from the Angles and the Saxons. Yes who invaded and stole their land. And you, you're a Republican, Scott, and you, you're offended by ancestral inherited nobility rights. If, if, if the difference that this hangs on between an Islamic voice to Parliament and an Indigenous voice is inherited land rights, it's shaky ground, I would have thought. Yeah, Not a great I've place no to, to. I've got no doubt about that. It is shaky ground for sure. But that's why the the whole idea of an Islamic voice to Parliament is ridiculous. But, but hang on, if I could demonstrate that the sorts of arguments that are made for Indigenous people, the gap, closing yeah, okay. the gap, right? If you could actually demonstrate there was actually a significant gap, then yeah. they probably and, have some some and, sort of argument. And for it. and their voice has been ignored. And they want a voice and their leaders want a voice. And after all, surely Islamic people know what's best for Islamic people and they should be allowed some autonomy over their own affairs. Well, yeah, they, they should be able to police their own communities. Yes. And, and, I mean, who are we to tell them how to live their lives? We, we need to allow them a voice where they can, because they're not being heard, Scott. I just thought it's experiments, dear listener. I know I am pissing a lot of people off with this, right? I know I am. And you're saying, Trevor, you are being ridiculous, right? I can hear you screaming into, you know, your phones out there. Look at the UK. Mm -hmm. There is an Islamic voice 
in the UK. It's not enshrined in law, right? but there is certainly a peak community body that is regularly consulted on various things that they feel will affect the community. Mm. Uh, the, the reserved senatorial seats in Parliament, mm. there are 12 archbishops in the House of Lords in the UK. Mm. So there's definitely precedence for this. Mm. Mm. So, you know, surely if we can get more information about Islamic communities and have their input, it can't be a bad thing. If we can just give them the opportunity to speak, to help close the gap, surely that can't be a bad thing. Yeah, but I don't see the same sort of gap. Right. So here's where we get to. You, dear listener, who is a yes voter in this situation, are now saying it's a question of degree. Whereas I can say I have a principle at stake, which is people must have the same rights irrespective of the cultural grouping that they might be in. And so I can just say to, in response to the proposed, a proposed Islamic voice to parliament, no, we all start with equal rights, no special rights for special groups. We're all at the same level. We need to help disadvantaged people if they happen to be disadvantaged, whether they be black or white or polka dot, or whether they be Islamic or Christian or atheist, it's a question of disadvantage. There, I get there, to say that, but There you... are special rights mm-hmm. for rich people. Yes. They get, Joe, a, they get a voice to parliament. Joe, stop confusing the situation. <laughs> so, so I get to say that argument, but Scott does not get to say it. He can only now say it's a question of degree. So that's what happens when you drop a principle is you then can't use it when you want to rely on that principle later on. So I can say no, race and religion or any other cultural grouping does not entitle you to special rights, okay? We must deal with disadvantage, not identity. Yes, voters have to say your situation is different to Indigenous people it's a matter of degree and your disadvantage is not as bad. That's the only way of, of justifying ethically a no, of being a yes to an Indigenous voice and a no to an Islamic voice. So just a few you know, bits and pieces just for this thought experiment, if you're playing around with it in your mind later on, dear listener, even though you're super annoyed with me now, I know it. Well, Liam is saying that you need to give Scott time to build a counter-argument. Okay. Because you've been thinking about this for some time. Yeah, that's true. And that's true. And I'm always happy to revisit topics later on. But just adding sort of points of interest to this whole thought experiment, right? 16 census, 604,000 people identified as Muslim. That's constituted 2.6% of the total Australian population. Not that far off the Indigenous population, which is 3-point-something percent. So Muslims, 2.6. Indigenous, 3-point-something percent. As of 2007, average wages of Muslims were much lower than the national average. Just 5% of Muslims were earning over $1,000 a week compared to the average of 11%. Muslims are overrepresented in jails in New South Wales, 9 to 10% of the prison population compared to less than 3% within the New South Wales population. There's a report from the University of South Australia which says that if you're looking at income levels, then 
Muslims are disproportionately represented in the low income and underrepresented in the high income. Children in poverty, 25.6% Muslims are in the less than $800 category, whereas for the general population it's 12.7. So 25.6 for Muslim, 12.7 for the general population. That's of children in, in poverty. Disability, needing assistance with core activities for elderly people. What does that say? 34% of, in, of Muslims do compared to the normal rate general population-wise of 15%. Probability of employment. Now, this is looking at your name. They do these tests where they apply for jobs using names which are obviously Indigenous, obviously Italian, obviously Chinese, and obviously Middle Eastern names. And whether you get called for an interview and whether your resume is even you know looked at. And your probability of employment, if you have an Indigenous name, decreases by 10.2%. If it's an Italian name, it decreases by 5%. 5.2%. If it's Chinese, your probability of employment decreases by 11.9%. If it's Middle Eastern, it, in, it decreases by 13.7%. So based on names, Indigenous people do a lot worse. So look, there isn't the extreme poverty that we see in Indigenous camps in remote Australia amongst... Indigenous. But then they also, I'm guessing, are mostly urban. Yes, that's true. Um, so it's a thought experiment and, and when I pose that to you, if your initial response was, well, we're all equal rights, um, we can't have special rules for religious groups just because of their religion, then you really have to ask whether you can maintain a consistent thought process on these other issues, like the voice. There you go. There's a thought experiment that I know has really annoyed a lot of people. And I know that the poverty level is quite different. But that's the whole point. You're reduced to saying, if you're a yes on the voice, and you don't like the idea of an Islamic voice, you're really reduced to saying it's a matter of degree. You've lost if, your principles. If you were to exclude regional First Nation people from the statistics, do you think that there would be less poverty? So, sorry, if? So in other words, if you compared urban mm. First Nation people, mm. Aboriginals, with urban Muslims, that right. you'd see a similar level of poverty? No, I think Indigenous would still be okay. significantly less, I think. But I don't know. But I suspect. I, I also read a, an article today... I think in the Wall Street Journal, mm. it was an opinion piece by a rabbi who was going on about Israel and Palestine mm -hmm. uh, and the whole land rights issue. And I, I'm just looking at it and thinking there are parallels mm. with what we're going through. Uh, it's different. I mean, the Israelis claim that it's the promised land mm. uh, and that, that immediately comes up with well, you're assuming that we believe that there's a God and we're, you're assuming that we believe this God has given the land to you. Mm. But it's very much as to we have historical land rights and therefore we deserve. And surely the Palestinians born in that on that land 
after the expulsion of the Jews or whatever, we're, we're entitled to stay there. That wasn't there, you know, it's, it's uh, by yeah, circumstance I mean, it's, and have as equal rights as anybody. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's all very interesting just looking at that and going, how does that compare? Mm. Mm. Speaking of overseas, how are we going for time? Just there was that dam that burst in Libya. So there was the incredible rain event and that caused too much water for the dams. It might have been two dams or one. Yeah, wasn't this an unprecedented thing because the Mediterranean was hotter than it's ever been before? Mm. And certainly an argument that the because Libya is a failed state now that there was hadn't been any maintenance done on the dams and no capacity to warn people when the dams failed and then no capacity to help people afterwards because of the mess that Libya is in. And Barack Obama and his Twitter account shared some links to organisations providing relief to the victims of the flooding in Libya. And Caitlin Johnston makes the point that that would, of course, be a fine and normal thing for America's 44th president to do had America's 44th president not personally played a massive role in paving the way to the devastation that we're seeing in Libya today. And back in 2010, oil-rich Libya ranked higher on the UN Human Development Index than any other nation in Africa, with much better national infrastructure to protect itself from floods. Today, it's a chaotic human humanitarian disaster. What changed well, in 2011, US, French and British troops helped rebels with extensive links to al-Qaeda to kill Gaddafi, which then plunged the nation into chaos. And it was a falsely branded humanitarian intervention designed to prevent an alleged genocide that Gaddafi was presumably plotting and the NATO attack on Libya quickly morphed into a regime change operation. And years later, a US, a UK House of Commons Foreign Affairs Committee found, made some findings about the whole thing. And I'll come to that in a minute. And what did they find? So that Gaddafi was not... So this is from the British Parliament, House of Commons Bipartisan Foreign Affairs Committee, looking back on the whole... NATO Libyan NATO war in Libya. It's and it revealed Gaddafi was not planning to massacre civilians. The myth was exaggerated by rebels and Western governments, which based their intelligence on little, or based their intervention on little intelligence. Um, the threat of Islamist extremists was ignored, and of course, it just gave rise to them. France, which initiated the military intervention, was motivated by economic and political interests. And the uprising, which was violent, not peaceful, would likely not have been successful if not for the foreign military intervention and that the NATO bombing plunged Libya into a humanitarian disaster, killing thousands of people and displacing hundreds of thousands more. So... In the show notes, links to different articles, another one by Chris Hedges, that basically said there was a beat-up that Gaddafi was going to kill a bunch of people and that was used as an excuse for NATO forces to go in 
And then that morphed into regime change, which then enabled Islamist forces to gather control, which plunged the country into chaos. And then having done all that, the West just left. And that's part of the background to a dam failing and that they were going to do a similar thing in Syria, except Russia stepped in and stopped what would have been a repeat of that. Just going into these countries and completely dismantling what has, the culture has built up over time and leaving such a huge vacuum is, is almost always going to result in complete disaster. You've completely dismantled things that took forever to build up. And, okay, might be perfect in your eyes, but you've got to look at what was the result afterwards. And these interventions have just proved disastrous for the people in there. Anyway, I didn't know much about Libya until this dam collapse. I was just looking at Lampedusa. What's Lampedusa? It's an Italian island that's sort of off the coast of Tunisia, in the the Gulf between Tunisia and Libya, mm. and it's been where a lot of migrants from North Africa have been trying to get into Europe. Mm-hmm. So they get to Lampedusa and claim asylum. Mm. But of course, bodies have been washing up on a regular basis. Yep. Same with boat people anywhere, and that all started in 2013. This is the place. Okay, it's Italian territory, but <clears throat> yes. it's on the African continent. And they've got uh, like a... It's just off the like, African continent. Okay. Is that the one where they've got a wall that leads to the sea and these people try and... No, so that's uh, Soita Emilia, which is Spanish. Ah, right. Okay. Yep. Yeah. So, you know, we look at these countries mm. and we go, these failed states, can't they get their act together? And realistically, while they may not have been Nirvana, they were doing okay, in Libya's case, doing better than any other African country... And, and plunged they into chaos. Also, they were also funding terrorists. Mm. No doubt, but who isn't? <laughs> who isn't? Yeah. Cursed by oil, of course, which they were selling to people that the West didn't want them to sell it to. They'd cut deals with uh, China. So that wasn't, that wasn't good for the long-term health of Gaddafi. I would have thought Gaddafi probably copped it, you know, in return for the... Bombing of the Lockerbie, Lockerbie. Air Desert. Yeah, yeah, Lockerbie. Like, I thought Gaddafi copped a hell of a lot from the, from the well, British so, and the Yanks over that. So they mm. did eventually jail... Two of them, and they two released of one. Yeah, they released one because he was dying and then he, suddenly he wasn't dying or something. Mm, exactly. Mm. Yeah. But, you know, as terrible as all that is, and you may hate the guy, just going in and completely dismantling a country. Oh, I agree is, wholeheartedly is with you. Just I mean, leads to these disasters that. Yeah, and Iraq wasn't mm. Iraq wasn't a land of milk and honey either, but it mm. was stable before mm. the Yanks got involved. Mm. Afghanistan, it was stable before the Russians got involved. Mm. You know, it's. I would have thought that the Russians would have learned from the Americans' mistake in Vietnam. And the Yanks would have learned from their own mistake in Vietnam not to get involved in these places, but apparently not. Mm. Actually, there's a new series on Netflix called Spy Ops, and the first two episodes are about, I think, Panama and somewhere else. Anyway, it was CIA involvement in an overthrow, Mm. and then one of them was about Afghanistan. 
Right. And, and it was just, you know, the, the, the minutiae of how do you overthrow a government. Mm. Sorry, how do, you, how do you support a rebel group in, in their freedom fight? Well, that Bolton character said, you know, coups aren't easy. I've been involved in a few, I should know. <laughs> Literally said that. Yeah. In the show notes for the patrons, a series of articles about the Uyghurs. It's been difficult to try and nail down what happened in China with the Uyghurs. And there's a report has come out recently by two in sorry, by four independent German um specialists on China and looking at the Uyghur issue. And basically the conclusion is that that there was a real problem of Islamic fundamentalism in the Uyghur community and there was serious terrorist attacks going on and China had a choice of what to do here, either let them continue or or not, it chose a very authoritarian response and no doubt bad things were done along the way, but it was done for the purpose of, you now the word re-education camp, Scott, it's got a bad connotation to it. <laughs> oh, it does for sure. But it was a genuine, the way these Chinese professors are saying is there was a genuine effort to to re-educate the community away from Islamic terrorist fundamentalism, like jihadism, and that the proof of that was that those facilities were in place for a short time, they've closed down, that it wasn't about wiping out the population and exterminating them. It was trying to stop the fundamentalist sort of jihadism and... Those facilities have closed and the Uyghurs are a thriving cultural community in that part of China, according to these professors. So full details in the show notes, copies of the reports. But, okay, if you're going to come down with a heavy hand and crack down on a situation like that, there would have been breaches of human rights, etc. But, but it's not the fully ugly picture that's been painted by the West. Read all that at your leisure, dear listener. Mm. That's it. Mm. I've, I'm done. 8.33, Monday night special. Any other thoughts, gentlemen? Uh, the whole Libya thing gives you a whole new take on it doesn't it it's one of those things like i mean it's clear that obama didn't have a completely clean set of hands no you know he wasn't the great merciful caring person that he made out himself to be Mm. what a disappointment yeah for sure Mm. Mm. well dear listener Thank you for for your participation in the chat room. Watley said, I'm with you, Trev. Excellent thought experiment. Thanks, Watley. Um, Liam said, I feel you need to give Scott more time to think of counter-arguments. He's on the spot where you're quite prepared. That is true. I do throw these things out, and you're dead right. I have an advantage. But then it's always open to anybody to rehash stuff over the following weeks, and, and we can do that. Talk about them at any time. 
Okay, next week is definitely going to be a, a pre-recorded episode on The Voice because I've got a whole bunch of notes that I haven't dealt with and then because I'm away and then we'll be back in two weeks' time on the Tuesday night. Joe, are you still around then? Two weeks' time? It is it. Yeah. It's getting close. Yeah. What date will that be? Okay. But the 10th? Still around? 10th, I'm still around, yes. Okay. All right. We'll have Joe for sure. Until then, we'll be back. Talk to you next time. Yep. Bye for now. And it's a good night from me. And it's a good night from him. Good night. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I've ever heard. At no point in your rambling, incoherent response were you even close to anything that could be considered a rational thought. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. May God have mercy on your soul. Now a matter of great importance has been brought to my attention. I speak, of course, of the generous contributions made by the patrons of the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast. These fine men and women have sacrificed so much for their countrymen. Never before in the field of human conflict have so many owed so much to so few. To those of you who are not yet patrons, I say this. Give generously of yourself. Give until you can honestly say, I have nothing left to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. Let me see. What is the time? Ah, 10 a.m. Now, where's my whiskey and cigars?